Hello and welcome to the Tamra Talk Circular podcast. We've all seen images of marine litter, whether it's a whale stomach full of plastic debris, a sea turtle surrounded by plastic bags, or simply a beach full of plastic garbage. There is no doubt that this is a real problem that must be addressed now. In this episode, we're going to focus on this catastrophic issue, where we are now and what needs to happen before it's too late. I'm Mitu Moran, and our guest today is considered to be one of the most active ocean advocates who is very much dedicated to saving our planet. Emily Penn is a skipper and artist who has done everything from arranging one of the world's largest community-led waste cleanups to trawling for microplastics on a voyage through the Arctic Northwest Passage. There's not many of us that can say that, Emily. Most recently, she has been the head, heart, and soul of X Expedition, a series of all-female voyages with focus on the relationship between plastics and toxins and women's health. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be joining you. So, Emily, you've been in this for quite some time. Maybe you can take us back to how you got started. Yeah, so it was actually 13 years ago. And I had just finished my training as an architect. That's not what you were expecting. And had my first job lined up in Australia. And I live here in the UK. So I started looking at the journey between the UK and Australia and thought that I really wanted to avoid taking an aeroplane, partly to minimize my carbon footprint and partly to have a bit of an adventure and see the world along the way. So after a lot of logistics and figuring out, I had a place on board a boat to cross the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans to get to this new job. And it was on that journey in the middle of the Pacific, we were 800 miles from nearest land. So the closest person to us was actually in the space station in orbit above our heads. And when I jumped into the water uh, for a morning swim, which was our only way of washing on board this little boat, (laughs) um, I came up to the surface to see a toothbrush just floating by, and then a cigarette lighter and a bottle top, and then started to realise all the little bits of plastic in between. And at the time, it just didn't make any sense. I knew nothing about this issue of plastic pollution. You know, this was long ago when it wasn't really in the media, wasn't really being talked about. And I thought there must be some kind of explanation. We started looking around, you know, what's going on? And then we continued for days and days and days. And we just saw this soup of plastic fragments and pieces that went just on and on through the Pacific And then, of course, the little islands that we stopped at were covered in this plastic as well. And so that was it for me. What I like to call my shift moment, the moment when my whole world sort of reorientated. And suddenly there was something that I really needed to focus on more than going to be an architect. And that's where it all began. Okay, so you're really one that actually walks the talk. Instead of flying, you decide to take the boat. I did. That's amazing. It's exactly. amazing. So this is, these are experiences that you're talking about in the Southwest Pacific, I guess. Yeah. In your experience since then, would you say that the problem is worse in some areas of the world than others? Yeah, so it does vary for sure. And so what we now know, which we didn't back then, is that there are these 
five accumulation zones. We call them gyres, and they accumulate between about 20 and 40 degrees latitude, both north and south of the equator. Um, and they end up in the middle of each of our oceans. And that's what we've been researching over the years. And it's due to the ocean currents, which is due to the spinning of the planet, that means all this plastic eventually ends up there. But having said that, you know, it doesn't mean that there's no plastic anywhere else. Um, you mentioned in the intro, you know, I did this trip through the Arctic, which is as far away from a gyre as you can get. And yet we still found plastic in those samples there as well. And then, of course, there's where the plastic is coming from, which is here on land predominantly. And so as it makes its way from land down rivers, streams, drains, all of these sort of point sources, it then starts that journey to mid-ocean. Some of it also sinks along the way, so it doesn't even make it to these gyres. So there is a big difference in the concentrations as we sample around the world. But ultimately, we all share one ocean. And I'm quite specific with this fact of we used to talk about different oceans in our planet. Um, and then when you sail around the whole world, you think, oh, hang on, it's not oceans. It's actually one ocean. It's all joined up. And um, in the same way that our pollution here in the UK, I'm not far from the Thames, the pollution that goes down the Thames here is connected to that place in the Pacific that I saw those years ago. And it really sort of makes us think about how much of a multinational issue this plastic one is, because we can't solve it individually in our countries. That ocean connects us um, and we need to be thinking on a global scale with solutions as well. And one of those, I guess, global collaborative efforts has been X-Expedition, which I mentioned uh, in the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So this is a project that started in 2014. And it, it began because I'd, I'd already been looking at this issue of plastic pollution and um, particularly the fact that it's breaking up into these small pieces and getting into the food chain as well. You know, when we catch fish out there in these gyres, we find that they've actually got fragments of plastic in their stomach that they've mistaken for food. And so back in 2014, I put together a project with uh, United Nations Environment Programme to find out more about the pathways of some of these chemicals, the toxic chemicals that are in the ocean as well, and potentially up the food chain into our own bodies. When I did, we ended up doing this blood test, a body burden blood test, where we looked at 35 chemicals that are banned because they're toxic to humans. And of those 35 chemicals, we found 29 of them in my blood. Now, I just, I couldn't believe this. I mean, having grown up, I think, quite conscious of what I'm eating, drinking, putting on my skin, I couldn't believe that I had these flame retardants and pesticides and fluorinated compounds inside me. And when I went on to understand more about the impact of those chemicals, I discovered actually the significance of being a woman and that those chemicals can disrupt our hormones when we're pregnant, um, which are obviously, you know, those hormones are actually absolutely crucial. And we can also pass those chemicals onto our children uh, in the womb and when we breastfeed. That's the point, right? It's not that only women are, are subject to these toxins, but actually that we can pass it on to children, correct? Exactly. And so that's what made me feel like it was quite a women-centered issue because of the impact it could have on the next generation. 
And so that was the moment that we set up X Expedition. You'll notice the double X representing the all women side of this project to really uh, understand more about this issue of microplastic and also these unseen chemicals that are um, in our environment and, as we now know, in our bodies. Um, so that's how it began. And since 2014, we then ran 11 voyages around the world in different locations, taking 10 women at a time with us. Those women, they come from all over the world and from all different backgrounds and skill sets. So everyone from a scientist to a journalist, an artist, a teacher, a designer, a policymaker, an industry leader, because we all need to get out there to understand the problem um, so that we can come back home and, and solve it, basically. And then in October 2019, we set sail for our most ambitious voyage yet, which was ex Expedition Round the World, where we set off on a two-year project to cover the whole planet. We got as far as Tahiti about halfway round when the pandemic kicked in and completed the rest of the project uh, virtually in a slightly different way. Uh, so it's been this most incredible journey over those years, and it's been fantastic to be working with Tomra on it as well. So what's that slightly different way? What are you doing now to continue your efforts? So when we got back from the Pacific, we then set up a platform called Shift, which you can find at shift.how, and it showcases the hundreds of different solutions that are out there for tackling the plastics issue. Um, and most importantly, solutions that can be done here at home on our doorstep, which is really where this problem begins. And then also working with this amazing community of ambassadors, the women who've joined us on board these expeditions and are now taking their experiences, their connections, their new knowledge back home to where they're from to implement that change in their households, their communities, their workplaces, their and governments, you know, whatever it is that they do and um, where they can really make significant impact. Okay, so Emily, environmental litter is a problem, whether it's land-based or marine. And of course, your focus is marine. You've been doing this, as you mentioned before, for 13 years now, you certainly don't look it, and have seen trends probably in the last 13 years. I'd be interested to know what some of those might be. Yeah, I think the sort of biggest discovery when I first got out there looking scientifically at the problem was actually that the problem wasn't these islands of plastic that maybe had initially been portrayed in the media. And to be honest, if there was an island of plastic out there, it would be a lot easier to go out and scoop it all up on a big ship and, and bring it back to land and, and deal with it. But the reality is that actually plastic quite quickly fragments into smaller pieces. And that's from the wind, the waves, and the UV rays from the sun. And it breaks down. Uh, obviously, the key here is it's not biodegrading. It's not going back into the natural sort of carbon cycle. Um, it's just getting smaller. Um, so it's harder to see. Uh, and it's much, much harder to then think about cleaning up. So it's only when we take this fine mesh net across the surface of the ocean that we, we really truly understand the problem and we, we pull up maybe 500 fragments of microplastic just in one small sample using our trawl. And then what we started to realise is that it wasn't only on the surface where we were initially looking and that, in fact, our ocean is incredibly three-dimensional <laughs> and, and, and very, very deep in places 
and starting to understand then what was going on in the water column and the fact that a lot of these bits of microplastic, they get biofouled. So algae grows on the outside of them, barnacles and things like that. That then makes them a lot denser and they then sink. Um, and so we've started to realize that actually a lot of this plastic is then sinking to the depths of our ocean, which is so deep we can't even get down there to measure it, let alone then clean it up. So I think all of this, you know, it really sort of leads us to thinking that actually this idea of cleaning up mid-ocean plastic, uh, what we now know is over five trillion fragments that are floating on the surface, it is just the most impossible challenge. And, and I am the kind of person that doesn't think anything's impossible, <laughs> but it, trying to do clean up is not the sensible place to, to start solving this problem and we really need to then focus on prevention. You've mentioned a few of the issues that you're seeing now. What types of plastics are you seeing? Where is it coming from? Yeah, so I mean they're, they're predominantly fragments because we also look at line, film, foam, um, but most of it is bigger hard bits of plastic that are breaking down. Um, and they're predominantly what we call secondary plastics. So again, it's that that broken down plastic rather than something like um, a microbead, which you might find in one of your toiletries, uh, like an exfoliating body scrub, where plastic's been designed to be tiny in the first place. So most of them are, are fragments. And then in terms of the type of plastic, so we um, have a machine on board called an FTIR, which allows us to actually understand the polymer type of the plastic that we're finding as well. Because I, I think that's that's the thing about all these little bits of microplastic. It's not like they have any brand names stamped on them or DNA that you can sort of trace it back. So the best thing we can do is look at the, the polymer, the chemistry to understand uh, what it might have been in, in its life on land when it was being used. And about 57% of our fragments of plastic are polyethylene. Okay, Emily. So what types of plastics do you see? Where is it coming from? So because these plastics have fragmented, uh, they're very anonymous. They don't have a, a brand name on them or any way of really telling where they might have come from. So we look at the chemistry of these fragments. We do polymer analysis to try and understand, well, what plastic is it? Um, and that helps us indicate what it might have been used for uh, when it was on land in its original form. And what we found is that actually 57% of the fragments of plastic are polyethylene. So plastic that might have been used for bags, for films, packaging, containers, and plastic water bottles and, and things like that. Uh, the next highest then is polypropylene. Um, and so this can help us understand, you know, actually, if most of the plastic's coming from those sources, then it's probably coming from things that are designed to be disposable and designed to be kind of thrown away. And, and that helps us sort of hone in on where we need the solutions. But I, I sort of would also caveat all of that with <laughs> the, the one overwhelming thing we've seen in our research is that there is no obvious one source of pollution. And that we will take one sample and get maybe 18 different polymer types just in one sample. 
meaning that actually there are so many sources of the pollution that are out that's out there, which probably indicates then that there needs to be lots of solutions. And and what do those solutions look like? You've mentioned this before that there's not one solution. So what do these solutions look like or what might they look like? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things for this whole conversation is that that there isn't a silver bullet. Um, I think we often have the tendency to go out there and want just this one simple answer that's going to solve the problem. And unfortunately, um, I, I don't think we're going to find it. And actually, I don't think we should be looking for it because we know that plastic um, is used in so many different ways. I mean, just, just looking around the environment that you're sat in right now, whether you're at home or in the car or whatever it is you're doing, there's plastic everywhere used for many, many different things, which means that we need many, many different solutions. And so we need everything from the design of new materials um, so that we can eliminate plastic altogether or switch to some sort of alternatives. We need new systems in place um, to actually better manage the waste that we are creating. Um, And we need behavior changes as well. We just need to do things slightly differently so that we're not relying on this um, sort of constant idea of being able to use something and throw it away um, in this very kind of wasteful way. So many, many different solutions that need different sectors to come together. Um, We need, you know, consumers and customers. We need industry and innovation and we need government um, to, to legislate as well. And we need many different people um, with the skills to create these solutions. You know, we need chemists, we need designers, we need teachers and educators, we need storytellers, we need policymakers, uh, we need everybody to be involved. And we definitely don't need everyone to do everything, but we do need everyone to do something um, to find their role in tackling this issue. So collaboration is absolutely key. We need to all be pulling on that same string and pulling on the same direction. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's all about kind of bringing together and and not just thinking, oh, I'm going to leave this to the government to sort out or I'm going to leave this to those clever scientists to sort this out. Actually saying, well, what can I do? Because there's something in all of our power uh, that we can do to make a difference. And I'm so happy to hear you say that, that it's not only one party or the other, because I know there are some that tend to push it that way. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you saying, and I absolutely agree, we all have a, our role in this. So I think one of the main points to make is that there, there isn't one silver bullet that we're looking for. Uh, we're not looking for one solution that's going to completely solve everything. And that actually we need many solutions um, for all of these different uses that we use plastic for every day. So everything from um, thinking about the plastic we use to actually minimize the amount of plastic we're using in the first place. And then when we are using plastic, we're thinking about the systems that that can go into um, so that it actually can get reused and recycled again and again. Um, We're thinking about new innovations for new materials um, that can actually design things in different ways. Um, behavior change, uh, which means that um, we just we aren't living in this very wasteful way where we're constantly using and disposing. Um, and so really what we're looking for is a whole range of different solutions that all work together to solve the problem. Emily, one final question. You are expecting a baby soon. And I know that many young people are choosing not to have children because 
Yeah, one of the reasons is the direction that this world seems to be going. What would you say to those people? I think this is a really great and very topical question at the moment. I mean, certainly for me, um, with, with where I'm at in my life. But I think uh, we're all questioning, you know, every time we read the news right now, I mean, there's, there's just another example of the impact that we are having on our planet and these huge, huge changes, which I completely agree. Um, it, it's pretty scary um, to, to see what's happening. And it does make me question what kind of planet are we leaving for our children? Um, and, and what will their future look like? I think for me, um, I've always been one to be quite hopeful um, and optimistic. And I do think there are so many reasons to be hopeful. Um, and actually, you know, I don't think all is lost. We, we can leave a better planet for our children than the one that we had um, left to us or that we've created in the last few generations. And I think my hope comes from a few places. One would be um, when I'm out there at sea, it's, it's been fascinating over these years, many years, to see the, the changes on the planet. And while some have been, uh, you know, more and more plastic in the ocean every year, not so good, um, others have been much more hopeful. We've seen coral reefs that have been damaged from a big coral bleaching episode and um, fully recover and restore themselves if they are in remote places that are completely left alone, meaning no pressure from fishing, no pressure from pollution, and we can just sort of take all of that human pressure off. And the ocean and our planet generally, nature, just has this incredible ability to bounce back and recover. So I really believe if we can change our, our ways, if we can take that pressure off the planet, then, then it will recover. Um, it's not too late. And then my other reason for being hopeful is just the, the attitude that has changed in the last decade of working on this problem, where 13 years ago, I would tell people that I worked on plastic pollution, and they would really would give me a strange look. <laughs> and they would say, well, you know, what on earth is that? And now you'd be hard for push to find anyone who doesn't know we have a problem with plastic. Um, and then they're not conscious of it and doing something about it. Um, and that awareness has been incredible in this last decade. We do still now have that challenge of turning awareness into action, which is where we're at right now. Um, but I, I really believe there's lots of people out there who, who want to do it. They want to see the change. They're motivated. Um, and so, you know, I think this next decade is absolutely key for us all to put into practice a lot of this motivation that is out there and, and these solutions that we now have, they, they are here. Um, we just need to implement them. And so um, I'm very hopeful for, for my future daughter that, um, that we can leave her a better planet than the one we have uh, that we're heading towards right now. Emily, I have to say this is one of the most inspirational conversations I've had uh, on this podcast series. Thank you very much. I've sincerely enjoyed talking to you and appreciate the urgency of the issue, but also hope, like you, that we can tackle this problem before Thank it's too you. late. I'd like to leave you with something that a Chinese journalist, Chai Jing, has said. The strongest governments on earth cannot clean up the pollution by themselves. They must rely on each ordinary person, like you and me, on our choices, and on our will. To learn more, 
go to tamra.com.